Healthcare Today is produced and paid for it by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. We're going to talk today about hearing loss, which is one of the most common and chronic health care issues we face. At least 28 million people in the United States suffer from some degree of hearing loss, and 500,000 are categorized as deaf. I'm honored to have two guests today who have spent careers in working with people with hearing loss. It just so happens that they also have uh, spent a life, nearly adult lifetime together. They are married. Dr. David Shea and his wife Kathy Shea are on the phone with us from Northampton, Massachusetts. Kathy Shea uh, is uh, got a undergraduate degree in communications and a master's degree in education for the deaf from Smith College. She has recently retired from the Clark School for the Deaf, where she was taught and, administ- and was administrator for 43 years. Dr. David Shea got Bachelor's of Science in both Zoology and Communication Disorders from the University of Massachusetts. He got a Master of Arts in Communication Sciences and Audiology from the University of Connecticut. He got a Ph.D. in Audiology from the University of Massachusetts and an M.D. with honors from St. George's University School of Medicine and currently works as a hospital-based physician uh, with uh, some recent lengthy stints at Rutland Regional Medical Center here in Vermont. So welcome to you both. Well, hello, uh, Dr. Lewis uh, Myers. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's great to have you both. And I, I want to, Kathy uh, Shea, I want to start with you. Um, you were in the field for your entire professional life. What influenced you initially to go into the field of hearing loss? Well, um, I have a brother who was born deaf and um, a grandfather who was deafened early on um, through his work. And I became very interested in learning more about it and um, trying to find ways to make life better for both of them. Was this an older or younger brother? A younger brother. So he was born, uh, did you know from an early stage that he was born deaf? Um, We learned very early on he was um, my parents' fifth child, and he did not react to sound the way the rest of us did. And um, my mom suspected right from the get-go that he was deaf, but um, professionals were telling her, you know, just wait, he's fine, he'll be okay. Um, And then my entire family had the flu and had to be um, taken care of um, by a nurse because we had gotten it so bad. So 
Some people try to attribute it to the flu when he was six months old, but um, my mom was pretty sure from the very beginning. And then as time went on, um, we discovered that he had lip pits and ear pits and um, other um, uh, symptoms of BOR syndrome, which is a genetic form of deafness. And how did the family and, and other, how did he learn to communicate with others and how did the family communicate with him? Um, when he was very young, my um, mom used to take five of us on buses to Long Island Speech and Hearing, where he had uh, services to um, try to develop oral language. He was fitted with hearing aids um, by the time he was two years old. But he had a very profound hearing loss, and he had these two huge body aids that at the time really didn't do very much for him. But he ended up going to um, an oral school for the deaf on Long Island and um, learned to use um, lip reading and um, to develop speech and language. Did you also, so you began your interest there. How did, how did you decide then to pursue that as a career? Well, I started in education and special education and um was working with children who were brain damaged and um, or had uh, limited uh, cognitive abilities, but my heart kept going back to kids who had hearing impairment. So I decided to do my graduate work up at Smith College who had um, a program in conjunction with Clark Schools for Hearing and Speech and um, the rest is history. Tell us a little bit about the Clark School. People may not be aware of that. Where is it? And, and tell us a little bit about the history and what it does. Um, Clark School started in 1867 in Northampton, Mass. Um, and it uh, was helped to be set up by a philanthropist who had a deaf daughter and wanted to make sure um, that she would uh, be able to continue with her um oral skills. And initially, um, the students there were deafened after birth. Um, but as time went on, um, more and more uh, services were being delivered to children who were born deaf. And um, initially, it was thought that hearing impaired children could not learn to speak, but that was not the case. Historically, uh, from a historical perspective then, children who, who could not hear were often shunted aside in, in American history. Can you relate to about when that began to change, or has it changed? Um, absolutely. I think it has changed a lot. Um, technology has made it um, easier for kids to develop speech in, um, in English language so that they can speak um, more clearly for themselves. Um, but early on, as you said, there was a stigma, and um, people associated communication skills with intelligence, which was absolutely not the fact. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. Does does a child's psychological and, and uh, uh, educational intelligence develop differently or normally if they have profound hearing loss? I would say that it would develop normally, but um, I think it's harder for kids to have the 
literacy uh, capability that they um, have the innate ability for if they don't have um, uh, English language skills. So let's just reiterate that because it's important. Children who are born deaf have the same intelligence. It, It does not affect their basic innate intelligence whatsoever. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, By the way, I want to invite listeners to call if you or someone you know and your family or friends have hearing loss or you have questions for our guest today. We're at 802-244-1777, and the phone lines are open. So, Dr. David Shea, uh, you began, even before going to medical school, you had a Ph.D. in audiology, so I guess we'll say you're Dr. Doctor. Um, (laughs) The, what what drew you to the field of audiology? Well, I uh, it was an accident, actually. I uh, was working my way through uh, UMass as an undergrad, and I was working at a chronic disease hospital. And there I did a variety of things, mostly in nurses' aid, but I would be responsible for assisting uh, some patients in the bed at night. And this one patient was uh, one that I was called to on that on his way. We put him in the bed, and I would say good night to him. He, he would not respond to me, and I, I was a little taken back by that for a while. And then one day I was at the nurse's station, and he approached the nurse's station. I was behind him, and I said to him, um, gee, I'll help you. And everybody looked at me like, don't you know that he's deaf? And and honestly, I did not know that he was deaf. Um, and it was the first deaf person I ever met. And uh, after I realized that he was deaf and how to communicate with him, we actually became very good friends. And I learned that he had gone to Clark School, and he suggested to me, well, if you're working almost full-time and going to school full-time, why don't you go to Clark School, get a job, and when the kids go to school, you can go to school. And that's what I did, and that changed the whole course of my life in many ways. Well, and of course, uh, I would imagine uh, you, on a personal level, you, you also found uh, Kathy there as well, which was a <laughs> wonderful thing. Um, let's talk about some of the acute – well, first of all, let me go back. Uh, Kathy, you mentioned that your brother was, was born deaf. Um, let's talk about genetic or hereditary causes of deafness. Um, what 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 have we learned about this? What are some of the most common uh, uh, reasons or causes why a child would be born deaf? I can open that up to either yep. of you, by the way. Well, I'd be happy to comment on that. Um, as you mentioned, there are a lot of hearing-impaired children uh, or children with hearing impairment born uh, every year. Uh, they, there's a continuum there. But when you consider those that are born with profound hearing loss, Um, the majority of them uh, are genetic-related. And um, when you consider the genetic links of deafness, there are uh, syndromic uh, causes, and these are genetic causes that typically have a constellation of symptoms or presentations or physical manifestations that make it a syndrome. And then the greatest number of genetic uh, hearing loss causes uh, are non-syndromic, and these tend to be uh, genetic transi- uh, transmissions, either mostly autosomal genes, 
that can be either dominant or recessively inherited. And the majority, almost four to one, are recessive inheritances, which means that there are a lot of recessive genes that are in our population, and it's only rarely that two people might come together and have uh, a child who has now a double recessive, and it manifests uh, as a uh, a hearing loss of that is profound in degree. Um, I think that speaks to the fact that a lot of children who are born with profound deafness, about 96% of them are actually born to parents who have normal hearing because of this recessive gene that is a major cause of deafness. Do you now, find that if if a if a if parents have a child uh, that is uh, born profoundly deaf, do they tend then to go through genetic testing prior to any future pregnancies? I think that's become much more common. Uh, when I was an audiologist, actively working as an audiologist, we would always have to indicate the cause of deafness. And um, probably the largest group of uh in our school was simply the unknown. We really didn't know um, what the cause was. But today, we've identified 64 different genes that can contribute to recessive deafness. And on those 64 genes, there are greater than 125 loci that have been identified. So we've come a very long way in identifying the genetic causes of uh, a lot of the hearing aid, hearing uh, loss types. Are there any particular centers here in New England that uh, focus on on the genet- genetics of the hearing loss? You know, I'm not aware of anybody in Massachusetts. Again, I, I'm not actively engaged in the field presently, but most people that I uh, have talked to speak very highly of the Boys Town um, uh, program. They've taken a leadership role, I think, in genetics of uh, deafness. Now, Clark did play a major role years ago, and they had developed pedigrees uh, that were very deep uh, and uh, very comprehensive. But that was given up at Clark many years ago, and I think a lot of that work went out to the boys' town. What about prematurity during pregnancies, you know, so many babies are born premature, and it's it's a pr- issue in many ways for many different health issues for newborns. But what about hearing? At, at what stage of of a pregnancy does hearing tend to develop? Well, um, I believe around five months, the cochlea and the hearing mechanism is uh, pretty much intact. Uh, so the development is during the first five months of uh, gestation. Now, a mother who is pregnant who develops uh, certain infections is at risk of having uh, a child with a hearing loss. Uh, we know in the early in the 60s, rubella was a major cause, but um, measles, uh, syphilis, uh, uh, any other type of maternal infection, anything that gives rise to a low birth weight can also uh, contribute to hearing loss. And then we, we would have students that occasionally would have anoxia at birth. Uh, sometimes they would have CP associated with their hearing loss, but uh, uh, anoxia at birth is, is a fairly common cause um, for childhood deafness. And cytomegalovirus was also, um, the maternal cytomegalovirus was also a, a 
primary contributor to. So this is something certainly the uh, in the world of obstetrics uh, that they are aware of. What about nutritional um, causes or uh, nutritional deficits as once children are born? Are there any nutritional deficits that can contribute to hearing loss in, in young people? Um, I, I don't recall that being a major uh, factor, uh, particularly in our world in, in the United States. Um, but certainly uh, after birth, uh, certainly infections and the use of ototoxic drugs can be contributory uh, to some hearing loss in children. For instance, you know, children that have meningitis early in their lives may end up on an aminoglycoside or some other um, medication that could be ototoxic. Do, looking internationally, do other countries have the same general percentage of people with children being born with deafness that we have? You know, I can't speak directly to the statistics, but my impression would be that our our prenatal care is superior to some of the third world nations, and then some of the environmental causes that I mentioned um, that may be contributory um, probably are um, more of a factor in those environments. Uh, I think in general, the genetic causes of profound deafness have increased in our society because we've learned to uh, minimize some of the other um, external or environmental causes. As we age, there are other, uh, as we move further and from the childhood, I suppose the genetic causes weigh in less heavily and, and other environmental, uh, contributors come to the fore. What are some of the environmental concerns or environmental issues that concern you, either of you, when, when you think about hearing loss and protecting hearing? Well, clearly excessive noise is, is a major contributor to hearing loss uh, uh, to our population. And, you know, there are so many activities that we engage in uh, that are noisy, um, and yet we tend not to uh, wear acoustic protection to the degree, degree that we should. Um, there are normograms um, out there, and by normogram I am referring to uh, a host of audiograms that are associated with each decade of the adult life. And we can tell that just by living a normal life um, that you have a, uh, a, a process of hearing loss that occurs. And then you add on to that the people that have very noisy work environments or hobbies uh, that uh, are very noisy or you know, they're cutting wood at their home over the weekend, whatever, um, then you see superimposed on that sometimes a very characteristic form of hearing loss, um, but you can accelerate that natural aging process by not really taking care of your hearing. As we've become in, in recent decades more attuned to noise pollution or loud, you know, the effect of loud noises, have we made any progress in, in or are we still uh, facing an uphill climb when it comes to protecting our hearing from noise? I think we've made some progress, but not enough. Um, you know, I, I see people 
doing their their jobs in the construction area or sometimes uh, in the landscaping area and I drive by and you know they're not wearing headphones and I, I just want to want to reach out to them and say you know your hearing is good now but you know when you're 60 when you're 70 um, you know you need to be worried about those times of your life because you want to be able to hear well and so I don't think we've made as as many gains as we uh, And just as an aside to that, um, my brother uh, worked as a machinist, and because he was deaf, they didn't give him ear protection because they figured it wouldn't hurt his hearing. And, in fact, it did, and he developed vestibular problems later on because he didn't have the ear protection. So, uh, yes, because the the nerves that that, uh, affect hearing can also affect Vestibular, which includes balance, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So let's, uh, we're going to go for a break in a few minutes, but we have some time here to talk about how do you screen for hearing loss, both in the pediatric population and in adults. Um, who would like to talk about that? How do we screen for routine screening for hearing loss? Well, uh, on the pediatric level, I suspect that each doctor's visit, uh, they're looking for developmental milestones. And, uh, and in Kathy's case, she, she highlights the fact that, you know, the family knew that there was a problem. And so for a variety of reasons, um, there's usually uh, an indication that there may be a problem. And at that point, uh, children are usually... Um, referred out for various types of testing to see if there is a legitimate problem or not. Now, if a child has a high risk of having hearing impairment in their family, um, typically most states have a program where they will identify that child and plug them into early identification services so that they can be maybe tested at a very young age. Um, And there are a whole host of uh, testing that's available, including otoacoustic emissions, uh, behavioral hearing testing that would be engaged if there was a suspicion that a young child had uh, hearing loss. And then there's automatic brainstem response uh, that could be used as well. And uh, many hospitals now do newborn um, infant screening routinely before babies even leave um, their facilities. How do they do that with a newborn? Um, With a Wait, the ABR? I believe there's an ABR, and again, I... What does ABR stand for? Uh, automatic brain response. Okay. It's a, it's a looking at the brainstem response to sound. Uh, there's also autoacoustic emission testing that, and I, I'm not sure how frequently this is used for hearing uh, screening in newborns, but basically it measures the cochlear's response to sound as it goes in. So... That's a relatively new technology. Um, so, yeah, there, there are screening things, uh, mechanisms in place that can help to identify um, uh, early hearing loss. You know, it strikes me from memory, remembering when I was in primary care that with, with those screenings that you talk about with children and newborns, um, that we don't have the same system in place for uh, adults. That often in primary care, uh, I think that many primary care uh, physicians and other providers uh, do not, uh, routine, you know, systematically screen hearing loss. Uh, has that been your experience? Uh, 
I would say that that is true. Now, um, I years ago when I was a, an audiologist, you're familiar with the gauge uh, questions for uh, use of alcohol. Um, it's just a screening uh, test. And I was thinking that a similar screening test should also be available for hearing loss. You know, do you need to use, you know, uh, amplification? Do you need to, do you have difficulty hearing in the certain situations? We don't really screen for hearing loss very well. Um, and the irony is the person who's hearing impaired is often the last one to know. Um, you know, many times I recall instances where I'd be talking to families and uh, we would call it husbanditis because everybody knew that dad was hearing impaired except for dad. Um, you know, the TV was way too loud or he wasn't hearing this or that. So there needs to be a better system in place, in my opinion, uh, to do better screening. That is um, that is very helpful to hear. Uh, in terms of the technical aspects of screening, uh, we may carry it over after the break, but Tell us a little bit about what when when someone does get referred for more formal hearing evaluation in an adult, what does that entail? Well, you know, when somebody is concerned about their hearing, uh, they'll typically go to an audiologist who will do a battery of tests to see where they are with respect to what we view as being normal, uh, our baseline normal. And we test hearing across a frequency range. Now, we hear between 20 cycles per second to 20,000 cycles per second. We call cycles per second hertz, but we typically test between 125 cycles per second and 8,000 because those are the frequencies that are most important for speech. And that's really the purpose here is to understand how one's hearing is affecting your ability to communicate. So we would use what we call pure tones and measure 125, 250, uh, 500, 1,000, 2,000, 4,000, 8,000 hertz, and achieve a threshold, which would be the least amount of energy needed for that person to hear each sound, and develop a graph with that. We would develop a graph for the left ear and for the right ear. Dr. Shea, I'm going to have to, we're going to come back to this. We're going to have to break in about uh, just a few seconds, but please stay with us. We're at 802-244-1777. We're back with the second half of healthcare today, talking with uh, Dr. David Shea and his wife Kathy, who are both professionals in the field of hearing loss and audiology. Uh, we do have a caller we're going to take in just a moment, but there was another question that came up, and, and I guess since perhaps since you are husband and wife, I, I won't ask you for uh, how people uh, handle this in every marriage, but you mentioned husbanditis. Uh, if there's someone in the family that that does seem to have hearing loss, doesn't recognize it, but everybody else does. I'll open up to either of you. What's the best way to get that person into some effective uh, screening and possibly a treatment for their hearing loss? Dr. Shea? Question. I just think yeah. uh, you need to uh, encourage uh, a, a dialogue and uh, – and I think, uh, you know, if you have support from the kids and everybody else in the household, uh, that probably is helpful. But I think most people would come to appreciate um, the value of hearing that they may have a problem and uh, hopefully proceed with seeking uh, help. Uh, 
Do you think um, there is some so, denial sometimes in that? I think, you know, there is still a stigma about hearing loss, about wearing hearing aids, and we'll talk about that again in a few minutes, but do you think there's often some denial? I think that's absolutely the case. Uh, I think there's a lot of denial, in, and I do think that even people that do have uh, a degree of hearing loss, that they compensate in different ways. Um, it's not unusual for somebody who does have a hearing loss in social situations to uh, command the conversation, to guide the conversation, because you know, they have difficulty hearing people, so if they're speaking, they're not having any trouble. So I think uh, there is denial, and I think people are trying to compensate in different ways, but I think having a frank discussion and, you know, encouraging people to seek help is, is the right thing to do. And many times it's helpful if that suggestion to seek help comes from someone outside of the family. Let me take the call from Matt in Waterbury. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm just, I, I had a question. Um, I'm, I'm hearing about recent studies saying that they're, they're finding exposure to, prolonged exposure to petroleum products like jet fuel, uh, heating oil, thing, diesel fuel, things like that can actually cause hearing loss. Is, is there, is there truth to that? that I'm hearing? Honestly, uh, I, I have not heard of that association. I do know that there is some concerns with the plastics that reside in our environment and are so uh, residual in our environment over a long period of time, but I haven't heard it as a direct cause of hearing loss. Um, okay. But certainly any toxins, you know, as we talked about earlier, medications can in, in fact damage the, the nerves that, of the, uh, that involve hearing. And I'm, you know, we have a lot of learning still to do about what toxins may be affecting that. Um, we have another caller we're going to take in a minute. Let me ask you two quick questions about very common things we see in the primary care in particular, cerumen or earwax, um, which can cause difficulty with hearing, particularly if it's chronic. Uh, how do you prevent buildup of earwax? Well, um, you know, interestingly, uh, cerumen or earwax is the number one cause of hearing loss worldwide. The fortunate part is it's, uh, it's mild and it is reversible. Um, some people, uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's autonomic nervous system or whatever, generate a lot of cerumen. Uh, cerumen is important because it keeps the outer ear uh, moist, and it also prevents the invasion of insects. Uh, people don't realize that that's a, a, a purpose of cerumen, but it can accumulate, and some people's accumulates quite a bit. Um, when I was working with the uh, children with deafness, uh, all of them wore ear molds. And people with hearing aids have ear molds or hearing aids that fit into the ear canal. And that tends to limit the outward migration of the cerumen, which is the natural process, and can lead to impaction. So the, the goal is to try to uh, prevent impaction. Uh, most times the cerumen will come out at night when you sleep, um, but in some cases it doesn't. In those cases, some uh, mineral oil sometimes is used or Debrox is used over the counter. Soften up that earwax and then 
it'll come maybe come out on its own or a gentle syringe will will wash it out but yeah it can be a problem in some people more than others what are your feelings about q-tips um, nothing smaller than the elbow right <laughs> that's an old adage yes Yes. So don't go digging in your ear with, with sharp objects, um, uh, if you take nothing else from this hour. Let me ask you briefly before our caller and, uh, tinnitus or ringing in the ears. And that can have many causes, but sometimes it can be related to hearing loss. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it can. It may reflect some previous damage that was, that occurred to the, uh, the hearing system, the vestibular system. And it can be very annoying for for a lot of people. I had a gentleman here in Northampton that I met probably 50 years ago, uh, 45, um, and he uh, he had tinnitus very bad, and bad. And he the only place he was comfortable sleeping was on a little trailer on the main coast by the ocean. And what he was doing was really creating a masking effect. Uh, which when he slept, when he was in his home here in Northampton, the ringing would just keep him awake. But if he found himself near the ocean, then waves coming in would mask that penetrating, annoying sound. So his advice to himself was he needed a masking device. Well, there are masking devices that can be purchased these days for people who have tinnitus and are disturbed enough that they can't sleep. So a lot of people employ them at their bedside, put on the babbling brook, and it really helps with kind of this at night for sleep. Uh, during the day, um, you know, it's, it can be uh, not debilitating, but it can be very annoying. Um, the important thing is to make sure that there isn't a reversible cause. So you need to make sure your electrolytes are good and you're working with a doctor, but um it, it is annoying uh, annoying um, uh, occurrence for, for some people. and very common let's take a call yes. from Marsha hi there thank thank you very much sure I'm calling about he- hearing problems with with music and um I'll 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 get in individualized with my with with my own problem. I, I have a gen, gen, genetic mid-range hearing, hearing loss, and I'm 73, and I have been wearing he, hearing aids full time for um, for for 20 years. Now, uh, occasionally I hear music, and it sounds warped, and this is more out of my left ear than out of out of the right. It's occasionally that that problem, but I but I also play play piano, and in when when I play with the left hand and in the lower registers, it's distorted. It's sometimes I'm sometimes hearing um, a whole note off of the co- co- the correct note. And uh, this is uh, without my hearing aids. It's worse with the hearing aids, so I don't so I don't wear, wear them when I play because because of the feedback. Marsha, we had a, a, a interesting program just a couple of few weeks ago on on 
musicians and some of the injuries that occurred can occur with musicians. And actually, I don't know that we really touched on hearing loss, uh, but Dr. Shea well, or, I, or Kathy, let me just uh, let me talk. Turn to Dr. Shea for a minute. Um, if you had someone come in to you with that complaint as an audiologist um, and that it was affecting something she'd really love to do, which is play music, how, how would you address that? Well, I, I think she raised a lot of good points. Um, yes, I think music for some people uh, puts them at risk for uh, certain types of hearing loss. Um, you know, when we assess hearing, we assess, you know, the degree of hearing loss. But one of the things we assess really through the assessment of their ability to hear speech is how well is the cochlea analyzing sound? How is it handling speech? Is it able, if speech is loud enough, can it understand speech? So the audiogram is just a, a physical outward manifestation of the hearing loss. But what's really going on inside the cochlea is very difficult to assess. And she's describing a situation where she has a hearing loss, but beyond that, her ability to uh, discriminate, synthesize, uh, analyze sound seems to be disrupted a bit. And the unfortunate part about that is both the hearing loss and the inability to integrate or understand what the essence of the sound is, uh, it really reflects, unfortunately, some damage uh, to the hearing mechanism. Now, you know, you have to make sure that there isn't something more severe going on, such as maybe an acoustic neuroma or whatever, but this often can be the consequence of just the damage that causes the hearing loss also causing causes the ear unable to function in the very complex way it was designed to work. Um, the cochlea is an amazing instrument, and it does amazing things. We're going to talk and for a minute. Can I, let me just uh, stop for a minute because we're going to talk about cochlear implants briefly. But I want to talk about, uh, in the time we have left, I want to talk with each of you about um, two approaches to profound deafness in this country. One is the oral method, or also known perhaps as lip reading, which uh, Kathy was talking about at the beginning of the show. The other field of thought is uh, sign language, or American Sign Language, ASL. Um, these are two very different uh, uh, levels of, uh, two different kinds of approaches. I did, should mention, I did try to get a guest on who uh, is familiar and represents American Sign Language, and was not able to, to get them to come on today, but uh, the Clark School, I think, is more associated with lip reading and oral uh, uh, approaches. Kathy, could you talk a little bit about that, about the two different fields of thought and uh, how some how a family would decide which way they want to go? Absolutely. Um, at Clark School, um, the primary mode was to, uh, was an auditory oral approach, um, not the focused more on lip reading prior to the 1980s, but as technology got better, um, there was more emphasis on using visual hearing because we had better instruments to support um, the communication. Um, but this lip reading or speech reading, um, that relied on face-to-face contact, 
and um, using uh, cues and context to understand what the speaker was saying. But as I said, um, we've drifted away from that more in um, uh, using more of the uh, residual hearing that um, our students had. And um, in sign language, um, there's the use of facial expression and hand movements and finger spelling to communicate language. So there were two different methods. Um, uh, at Clark School, we relied primarily, it's an oral school, so sign language was not used, but that's not to say that our students um, down the road didn't use sign language, but they had the option to do that because they developed their oral communication um, as young um, students. Um, the sign language approach is very appropriate for um, many people as well, but in that case, if you start out with only sign language, um, you can't go back and teach um, oral communication down the road. So, If um, you're going to learn but, oral communication or lip reading, is it best to start at a very young age? Uh, yes. You want to identify um, uh, children as soon as you can. And that's why newborn screening um, came into play, and there was such a push for that because there's a critical period for learning um, language, and we wanted to make sure that we optimize that for our students. Um, Do you think that critical period is as in, uh, important for sign language? Because I know there are a lot of adults that learn sign language. Absolutely. And um, a number of our students, especially ones um, who uh, we had at Clark through the 60s and 70s, most of those um, kids well, they're adults now, they use sign language when communicating amongst themselves, but they use their speech and oral language um, in the greater community and with hearing people. Um, when you speak about community, it does seem to me as a layperson in this area that when people communicate only with sign language, that they have formed their own community. In other words, unless someone, a hearing person who knows sign language is able to uh, can join in, but mostly they're within their own community, whereas someone who is uh, a deaf person who's lip-reading is interacting with a broader community, a broader range of people. Is that fair to say? Um, I would say so. Um, there are hearing-impaired people who uh, have chosen sign language as their um, sole mode of communication who will use interpreters when they want to access um, outside of their community. Um, but again, then you're adding another person um, and you lose some of your privacy um, when you need to have someone else do that for you. Is there is there competition between the two fields of thought? In the 80s, I would say it was very adversary. Adversary. Um, adversarial. Um, but I think we've drifted away um from that quite a bit. I think people are more open to looking at personal choices. And um, as Dave had uh, alluded to before, most um, hearing impaired children are born into hearing families. So um, families will typically look for something that will help their children be part of their family and the greater community. And um, in my own case, my father checked out all the options 
and my mother for my brother um, and also wanted to learn sign language as he went into um, a total communication school in his middle years. Uh, but he didn't want them to do that. He wanted them to speak with him, and he would sign with his deaf friends, but he wanted to speak with hearing people. That was his choice. So he could so, really use both. Yeah, he could. And many times he had to interpret for his um, other deaf friends when they were in social situations. Right. Well, there's so much there to talk about. We have just a few minutes left, and I want to turn to, back to Dr. Shea um, to talk about some of the uh, the progress we made in hearing aids. Uh, you mentioned the cochlea, uh, cochlear implants, which is a surgical procedure done by otolaryngologists, has have become more common. Um, if if you look back over the last thirty years, has been a, a just a sea change in in effectiveness. Yes. Absolutely. And I would say uh, really the number one innovation here for this particular population has been the cochlear implant. And that I saw that emerging before I went into medicine. When you say this population, and do you mean the, the profoundly deaf or genetic deaf? deafness? Yes, the people that were born with profound deafness okay. or acquired profound deafness um, the cochlear implant, probably in the late 80s, uh, was emerging, and it was a one-channel device. Um, the House Ear Institute out in L.A. was leading the charge, if you will, as far as cochlear implantation in the new way. And Bill House actually came out to Clark. Uh, he was the surgeon on, on that project. And uh, at that time, I could not really endorse the cochlear implant as a single-channel device because I felt it was very limited. But shortly after that, a new device was introduced, which was a 22-channel device. So instead of having one active channel in the cochlear, you had 22, which gave you a nice tonotopic representation of speech across the cochlea. And when those kids started coming back to my lab, and I started testing them, I was impressed with their abilities. And some of the kids were actually talking on the telephone with training. So I knew that was going to be a game changer. And I would say, you know, for the most part, those many kids who are born with profound deafness, with cochlear implantation, they don't see themselves as being deaf, which is a cultural assignment, in my sense. They view themselves as being hearing impaired in a hearing world. And I think Kathy might have seen this in her population because she was getting more and more children with cochlear implantation. And she was talking about speech reading. Those kids became very poor speech readers because they didn't have to be speech readers. They were hearing so well that that was allowing them to speak. How, to how speech about language. older folks who are suffering uh more, much more common just hearing loss uh, over over the years. In terms of hearing aids, what have been the major changes in hearing aids? Well, I think, you know, the, the digitalization of hearing aids has been a wonderful thing because it allows you to process the signal uh, more specifically for the individual. Uh, the advent, hopefully, of noise canceling technology will continue to improve in that industry. The Bluetooth connectivity that uh, hearing aids 
allow you to have with your phone and perhaps with a remote microphone is a tremendous plus. So that whole industry has uh, begun to blossom and is taking advantage of all these AirPods and these developments that we're doing to hear music better are being incorporated into hearing technology. Which is, a, which is a very good thing. I was going to say, in terms of the stigma, too, since it seems like just about everyone's walking around with these ear pods, that uh, uh, it's hard to tell the difference between them and, and hearing aids. So, uh, That's true. Um, it's, uh, now, uh, there have been some changes. We have just two minutes left, but there have been some changes. Medicare is going to... Uh, pay for screening and some of the, these hearing aids can now be uh, purchased over the counter. Can you very briefly talk about these changes? Well, I think as of 2017, uh, the regulations requiring the sale of hearing instruments changed, allowing a more universal availability. And I think as a result of that, companies have chosen to, um, to get into the industry And uh, I think that competition is only good for the individuals out there that have hearing loss. As far as Medicare, Medicare has historically not paid for hearing testing unless it was medically indicated. Uh, But if they're opening up to include screening, I think that's great. Uh, I'm going to have to stop you there because we're going to have to stop in just a few seconds. First of all, I want to thank Dr. David Shea and Kathy Shea for sharing their expertise their long experience in this field. Thank you both. And uh, and let me just put a brief plug in for the movie Sound of Metal. came out in 2019, nominated for a number of Academy Awards, perhaps the most sensitive film I've ever seen on the experience of hearing loss. But again, uh, thank you, Dr. Shea and Kathy, David Shea and Kathy Shea. And please join us next week. Until then, be kind to yourselves, be kind to others. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.